The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Derry Ganshorn. She is the executive director of the Homeless Garden Project based in Santa Cruz, California. Under Derry's leadership, the project has developed the Transitional Employment Program, grown revenue fourfold, and has successfully completed a 3.5 million capital campaign. 30 years ago, the Homeless Garden Project was founded by Dr. Paul Lee, who envisioned a haven, a place where people experiencing homelessness could rebuild their lives in the nurturing environment of a garden. And that grassroots effort has grown to become an award-winning urban organic farm that provides job training, transitional employment, and support services to people experiencing homelessness. In my opinion, the Homeless Garden Project is a national model, and Derry has been with them since 1991. Welcome, Derry. Thank you. It's really good to be here, Melinda. I am thrilled to talk to you because many years ago, I had a meeting in Santa Cruz with the Organic Farming Research Foundation, and I was wandering around Santa Cruz because I had a few hours, and I stumbled upon the Homeless Garden Project, and I was intrigued then, and so now I'm finally having an opportunity to dig deeper and find out about the success of the program. I mean, 30 years is a huge accomplishment, and the fact that you've been there really for the whole time tells me that you love the work. So tell me, how did you find the Homeless Garden Project? What's your background? Yeah, well, I studied biology, and I fell in love with doing research. And I was fortunate to have, as an undergraduate, a really amazing mentor, Dr. Paul Licht, who gave me a research project to do on turtle reproductive cycles and how the environment impacted the biology. Mm. and I just enjoyed it thoroughly, and I took a break to have children, and when I had my first child, my son, I just decided that I wanted to do something to give back and to really work with basic needs and to make sure that everybody has equal opportunities. Mm. And I was doing an internship at our local resource center for nonviolence, an incredible resource, and I found the Homeless Garden Project, and I realized it was exactly what I wanted to do. It had all of the elements that I was looking for. It was about empowerment. There was a very self-sufficient, wonderful community happening there, and I was able to do a newsletter bringing the voice of the project out into the community. And I've been stuck on it ever since. Well, your website is beautiful, and I want to direct our listeners there, simply homelessgardenproject.org, and you can read about trainees who have gone through the program, the fact that it's been 
life-changing and that it has been remarkably successful. Is it a 92% success rate? Did I read that correctly? Of people who go through the program actually end up employed and housed? Yes, since we've been tracking that metric, between 90 and 100% of the graduates from our program have gotten into jobs and housing. We track it year by year. And we really do have an amazing success with people who are able to complete the program. To what do you owe the success rate that you've witnessed? Well, the project is a really holistic program, and we offer a lot of resources to people. And at least some of those resources are going to make the difference for our trainees. Some of them are working in a garden is very therapeutic. So people are able to get a lot of healing. Some of it is we have a really, really strong community aspect to what happens at the farm. One of our programs is called Cultivating Community, and it's our community education and volunteer program. Last year, we served about 2,500 people in that program who came and worked with the project in one way or another. And the volunteers really provide a supportive network for our trainees. They also help our trainees realize that the community really does care about their success. Sometimes we hear from our trainees that when they're on the street or when they're out in the community, not at the project, that there's a lot of insulting and marginalization that happens. But at the farm, everyone steps up into their best version of themselves and really comes in a spirit of service, comes in a spirit of seeing the best in each other and in a spirit of curiosity and acceptance of diversity. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you brought this up because I had a question for you about the relationship of the community with the trainees. My experience with homeless populations is I'm always curious to know how a person becomes homeless. And if I feel like it's a safe space where I can not intrude upon a person's privacy or space, I frequently ask people how they became homeless. I also sense that many people in my community are fearful of homelessness. Like they fear those who are living as homeless and they fear interacting with them. So the fact that the community volunteers come together with those who are indeed homeless, I feel like that maybe that could break down that fear. Is that what you're seeing too? Yes. There's also just something about being on the farm that is a great equalizer. Oftentimes our trainees have more experience with some of the tasks that are happening on the farm. So they're actually teaching somebody Mm -hmm. to what they need to know in order to complete a task. The farm work really gives our trainees also quite a bit of dignity and a sense of purpose and helps people grow in their self-esteem and their confidence. And all of that transforms relationships with the community. Mm. That's really beautiful. Well, I also saw on your website, I really dove 
in deeply. And I encourage our listeners to do the same because it's a beautiful website. Your 2018 annual report spoke volumes about the success of the program. But it says that you work with social workers and it's your program is based on a positive psychology model and uses motivational interviewing and evidence-based practice. Can you tell me a little bit about that and paint me a picture of what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Our social work program is called Connecting with Community, and in its current incarnation, we have a licensed clinical social worker who supervises MSW interns from local universities. And each of the MSW interns works with a number of trainees where they meet with them every week. And the idea is that these social workers are not here to tell our trainees what to do. They're here to support our trainees in identifying their own goals and in setting their own path and their plan and how they want to meet those goals. Mm. So they use a process that works with somebody's own motivation to help them reach their goals. And when I've done some of the trainings on motivational interviewing with our licensed clinical social worker, Francis, he talks about how when any of us want to make change in our lives, that we all sort of encounter some ambivalence about making that change. There's often some rewards to be had for making a change in our lives, but also some risks to be taken. And the motivational interviewing just supports people to be aware of their ambivalence and try to resolve it and work through to change. Hmm. And I have to say, Melinda, that change is really kind of at the heart of what we're working with here at the Homeless Garden Project. And it really, at some point, I have finally just accepted that change in a way is a beautiful mystery when any of us makes an important and meaningful change in our lives, there is an element of mystery and grace that happens that I think the farm really promotes. Mm. You know, the sense of being wrapped up in the beauty and the fertility and the vitality of the farm creates an incredibly positive and safe space. You can't plant a seed without having a sense of hope And then being able to see that the seed you've planted has grown into a plant and the the plant has borne fruit and then harvesting that fruit and giving it to a CSA member or giving it to someone in a community who is at risk or is vulnerable and might not have access to that food without our trainees being a part of this whole cycle here, that creates a lot of meaning. Absolutely. And empowerment, I would guess. Yes, that's the perfect word. Yeah. Now, you've got a kitchen. You cook meals. Tell me about how that works. Because being a dietitian, I am really sensitive to the power of food. And I just don't know sometimes how people can function with the quality of food that is ubiquitous in our environment. And especially for a homeless population that might not know where the next meal is coming from, might have to depend on poor quality food that is very much distributed at many food pantries. I mean, it's just the way of the world. We get a lot of highly processed food that is distributed. 
And nobody's going to feel well mentally or physically on that kind of food. And then here you have organic produce on your farm. And I can only imagine that people feel enormously better after eating that food. Yeah, we serve a lunch Tuesday through Friday whenever our trainees are on the farm. And it's cooked by a volunteer. We ask volunteers to take a day of the week and then they cook for many weeks. Many of the volunteers go out and harvest the food from the farm before they cook. We also have on our farm, we have what we call posts. And that's a way for trainees to focus in on a certain area of all of the farm tasks. One of the posts is to work in the kitchen with the volunteer and help prepare the meal for whoever's going to be there that day. We started out by working with our local Zen Center. They wanted to do some kind of service, and they found a way to, it was a, just a very simple meal plan. They would make a pot of soup, a pot of grain, a salad, and a stir-fry. And we thought, well, we're doing this on Fridays. We should do this every day. And so it's really expanded to be a really special program. When we have volunteers on the farm, they also sit down and share lunch with us. I remember one time a volunteer said to me that she only wanted to cook food for people who were experiencing homelessness. And I said that we really want to work to bring people together and to not label people who are homeless and people who are not homeless. And it's a little counterintuitive of an idea, but we have found that sharing food together really brings people together in a powerful way. I would certainly agree with that. I think that we don't give the power of sharing food enough credit for all that it can do. So I love what you're doing. We've got to take one short break because we're halfway through. And I just need to remind our listeners that if you're just tuning in, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Derry Ganshorn. She is the executive director of the Homeless Garden Project based in Santa Cruz, California, but absolutely a national model for all that we can do through farming and food and compassion and dignity. The farm is just a miraculous place from all I can tell. All right, we need to jump into this, something you touched on earlier, and that was this whole bit of transition. And you are transitioning from a three or 3.5 acre space to a nine and a half acre space, which is tremendous. It shows just how successful you are. And all of this is going on at the same time as we've got the pressure of COVID-19. So big changes on top of already a challenging environment. So let's start with the move to the bigger piece of property and what that will afford you. Great. Well, so this is city-owned land. The city has Hoganip Green Space, which is a 640-acre open space property. And way back in the 90s, the city put together a task force that decided unanimously to use this space in a very low-impact way. They actually called it the moderate use, when it included a nine-and-a-half-acre farm site for the Homeless Garden Project. And 
Back then, we put together a plan for how we would use the site. And then in 1998, the city approved the Poconet Master Plan, which included a nine-and-a-half-acre site for us. We sort of put that plan on hold for a while until about four or five years ago, we started getting really serious about building our permanent site. We worked with the city to finalize a lease. We have a 20-year lease with three five-year renewable terms. And we started working with an architect and an engineer to get our building permits and our design permit. And we also started raising money from the community. And it was a pretty daunting, ambitious goal, but it's just so affirming of our work that the city really our community members stepped up with three and a half million dollars. We were ready to begin construction when the city asked us to stop construction until they could do some testing to see if there are any impacts of historic skeet shooting on the site. And so right now we're waiting for the results of that testing and for approvals to begin construction. Is that because there would be lead contamination of the soil? That's one of the concerns, yes. Mm -hmm. So currently, we are farming on land that we've been using since 1995. There's an incredibly generous donor in our city who has allowed us to use that land, and they're ready for us to move on. And we have an office that is a 10-minute drive from the farm. At the farm, there's no toilet, no electricity, no internet. All of that is here at our office. So at our new site, we'll have everybody all together on the same site, which will create some real operational efficiencies. We also have never had the luxury of planning for the long term, really coming up with a long-term plan for our farm and Mm -hmm. our farm enterprises. This will be the first time that we've had an orchard And we can use the orchard in our value-added products and expand the value-added products that we currently offer to the community. We also will have a lot more flexibility in terms of right now, if it's raining, we have to work at our workshop or shut down for the day. But at this project, oftentimes it rains for a while, so we could go indoors while it's raining and then go back outdoors to the farm if the soil is dry enough for us to work. Mm -hmm. We also feel like the farm is going to be a destination. We really want people to travel and come see our farm and learn what we do at the farm and see it as a destination and a model. Our goal is to farm for a year with our existing crew. Right now we offer 20 positions a year. When we get to Poganup, we want to farm for a year, make sure our systems are really tight and that we have a really robust training environment, and then double to 34 positions. And eventually, we'd like to get up to 50 positions per year so that we can have more community impact. Yeah, absolutely. So during all this transition and all of these loose ends that still have to be put all together, We're facing the COVID-19 tragedy. How has that impacted the work on your farm? Yeah, well, we 
we had to really put our heads together as a staff and think about how to address the COVID-19 virus. And farming is, of course, an essential activity, as well as activities working with economically disadvantaged people. We wanted to make sure that our trainees would be able to sustain themselves and the the growth and the progress that they had made, and we couldn't see how that could happen if people had to leave the project. So we put together some very robust policies to prevent transmission of the disease, and people wear masks, there's a lot of hand washing, there's a lot of social distancing. We felt that there was more safety on the farm than there was if we were running an organization that was all operating indoors. I agree. Before the virus, we had what we call circle meeting once a week, and we started doing it every day so that we could all start the day off together and make sure that everybody was monitoring and following these policies that we've put together. And we have a lot of reminders throughout the day that people should be following the policies. We asked volunteers to stop coming to the farm, which has been a a really big void for us, you know, because the community is such a big part of the work that we do. We have had cooks coming. They cook at home and then bring the food here, and then there's some policies for serving the food and how the dishes are washed and all of that. But the trainees just regularly have been expressing their appreciation that they still have a job and that they have their each other in the community. And when the virus first hit, it was the very beginning of the season. And now I think we're in week eight of our 23 weeks CSA season. And the farm is, there's a lot going on. There's a ton of flowers. We're almost ready to be harvesting tomatoes. The herbs are beautiful. We're harvesting a lot of edible flowers and the whole wide range of summer greens and summer veggies. And, of course, we also have the most delicious strawberries on the West Coast. (laughs) I don't doubt it. Well, before COVID-19 came on the scene, the biggest challenge that I was navigating with regard to food, nutrition, sustainable agriculture, and public health was climate change. And so now on top of climate change, we're layering COVID-19. Things have just exploded with regard to challenges for so many people. And I was going to ask you from a climate perspective, just simply being in California, the climate is dry. How are you doing with regard to water, for example? You know, we pay a lot of attention to our water bill. We use city water. It's actually been a pretty cool summer so far here in Santa Cruz. It's very foggy. And there hasn't been a lot. There hasn't been any red flags with water bills so far this year. We do have drip irrigation. And we do have a design in our new permanent site that will be collecting rainwater. Oh, great. Good. That's good to know. Well, I want people to go to your website and just see one of the reasons why I thought you were a great national model is because you have so many diversified 
ways to bring in income. So in addition to, of course, foundation support and grants and, and donations from people who love what you're doing, you've got restaurant partners, you've got a CSA, you've got the store where you sell wonderful items and people can buy them online. It doesn't matter where you're located. So I really appreciate the fact that you've got multiple revenue streams. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, and I can also talk about that in relationship to COVID-19, that we, our CSA this year sold out before we ended the early bird price. Um, and we now have a waiting list, of, uh, an extensive waiting list for people to join our CSA. You know, when we first started the project, we used to lay people off in the wintertime when it was raining. It just didn't make sense to us to have people who were living outdoors to have to come and work in the rain and then have nowhere to go. But the trainees did not want to stop working. They wanted to keep working and brought us ideas about making wreaths and about making beeswax candles. And those were really our two first core products. And then since then, it's just diversified, mushroomed. This year, also, we had to close our store for a while because of the virus. And once again, the community stepped up in very generous, supportive ways, and we shot past all of our online store goals. It's our 30-year anniversary this year, so we're looking to put together some 30-year anniversary products that we'll be selling on our store. And the trainees make most of the products that we sell, and it gives them yet another set of skills that they're learning. It also provides work during the rainy months. Right. Well, we just have a minute left. I knew our time was going to fly. Of course, I have many more questions and points that I wanted to make, but I want to give that minute to you. Do you have any send-off to our listeners or anything you want to bring forth that I may have neglected to bring up? Oh, my gosh. I have so many things, Melinda. <laughs> but I think I'll just end with the words from one of our trainees, Lena Ollie. And this is on our blog. Her words are on our blog. One of the things we do is we have a couple sustained suppers every year on the farm where about 200 people from the community come and support our work at a fundraising dinner. And we always have a keynote speaker, and then always we have what we call the voice of experience, one of our trainees talking about their time in our program. They're profoundly inspiring, these talks. You were talking about asking people how they became homeless. Oftentimes, trainees decide that they want to talk about that. And you can really hear the incredible transformation that people have made while they've been with us at the farm. Elena Ali, this is just one little part from her larger talk. She said, here amongst the flowers and vegetables, we replant our own paths in life. We cry, laugh, and work together. We push forward into all we are destined to become because we have been gifted with the time to grow on the farm at HGP. That is beautiful. Well, I will provide a link to the Homeless Garden Project so people can read the trainee stories as well as so much more. 
In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Derry Ganshorn, Executive Director of the Homeless Garden Project based in Santa Cruz, California. Congratulations for your terrific work, and thank you for being my guest. Thank you so much for helping us get this story out to your listeners.